Well, I just want to say how awesome it is to be here with you, Susan, oh, because this book is just magical. It's so beautiful. Oh. And you're going to start us out with a reading. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to open. Um, oh, my God. Look at this. Um, <laughs> Okay, yeah, the paparazzi. Um, I just wanted to open with just a little quick overview of the book and let you know that the book um, deals with um, three women who are outliers of their time, sort of um, on the outside, and um, and through their hard work and their dedication and their talent, they reach um, a place of. Um, of fame or um, success, and um, the three women are basically um, well, not basically. The three women are um, Giuseppe uh, Palladino, who's like the most famous medium of the time, and Marie Curie, who's um, Marie Curie, the scientist. And these uh, two women are um, explored through the eyes of my protagonist, a young Polish girl, a devout Catholic, who comes to Paris to make something of herself and ends up being a cook. Uh, for Madame Curie, and um, in each in each their own way, these are um, these three women are purveyors of m- miracles. Um, Lucia, um, it turns out to be this fantastic cook who makes miracles in the kitchen. Uh, Madame Curie is, of course, a scientist who identifies radium and makes miracles in the laboratory. And Eusebio Palladino, this famous spiritualist, creates miracles in the seance room. And so it's kind of um, an exploration of their lives as seen through the eyes of, of my cook, um, Lucia. So um, I just wanted to give you, for the first reading, I wanted to give you a little peek into Marie Curie's laboratory. Um, Okay, here we go. By the time they left, Marie was back at the fire, stirring the boiling mass in the basin. It was a leaden afternoon, the sun nothing more than a soggy orb in the sky, no brighter than the moon. She gripped the heavy iron bar, her her hands beginning to cramp, eyeing the clouds with suspicion. She cursed the weather when it began to snow in earnest and hunched her shoulders against the cold. She did not fancy standing out in a snowstorm. She stood in one the week before and did not relish doing it again. Nevertheless, she knew that even if there was a blizzard and even if her hands and feet froze, she would not desert the work. It was small comfort that this fevered loyalty brought on a warming rush of emotion that for the moment at least gave her some relief. Without warning, the wind shifted again, sending the smoke in Marie's direction. But this time she was too quick for it. She stepped out of the way and turned her back on it while still continuing to stir the slurry. She could see by its consistency and by the way it was behaving over the flame that it was nearly complete. Pierre had returned to his work as well. She could see him through the glass, seated at a table, surrounded by the odd assortment of tubes, pipes, coils, and wires that made up the equipment he built himself. He really was a gifted physicist, the way he stepped into a problem and inhabited it. 
He could live inside of it as if it were a house, going from room to room, exploring it from the inside, and then stepping out to gain a whole new perspective. She never thought of herself as gifted, only that she was a hard worker. Still, it was gratifying the way he relied on her and appreciated all that she brought to their partnership. Whenever there was a problem of mathematics, he would always say, ask Marie, she'll know what to do. This was the way they worked together in a state of almost complete absorption. This was their home. Not a physical space, but a place all the same. Just big enough for the two of them. Here, in this miserable shed, their affectionate term for the hangar, they worked in tandem. Marie labored with 25 kilos of pitch blend residue at a time, reducing down the chemical makeup, hunting for radium and barium chloride. The residue was the byproduct of uranium extraction, the dust, dirt, and pine needles left after the first reductions. It was thought to be worthless and left in piles on the forest floor, not far from the chemical plant. It was not worthless, however, at least not to the Curies. To them, it was precious, buried treasure. It was radium, their progeny, a sibling to Irene. While Marie labored to isolate radium, Pierre studied the properties of the rays and admitted each day the Curies were thrilled, frustrated, and amazed by all the tricks their rays could do. Each night they returned home, broken by fatigue, but buoyed up by curiosity and a steadfast commitment to isolate the radium salts and hold it in their hands. Marie was confident that through these reductions and fractional crystallizations, she could tease out enough radium to get an atomic weight. Once that happened, it would be added to the periodic table, and no one could refute their claim to the new element. It would be theirs, their sole achievement, provided, of course, they got there first. When the solution was done, she put on the smelter's gloves, braced her legs, and lifted the iron basin off the fire. She struggled under the weight of it as she lugged it into the hangar, where she and Pierre poured it into a great glass vessel. There it would sit until the solution separated, and the less soluble soluble material could be collected and further reduced through chemical washings and frackinations. Since it was late, Marie made them tea, and they sat by the stove, their hands warming on the steaming mugs. This was a particularly enjoyable time of the afternoon, when most of the work was done and they could take an inventory of the day, speculating on the outcome of their research, on the possibilities, the applications, the implications for physics, and the nature of matter and its effect on energy. Pierre was finding that these rays could penetrate certain materials. Some could penetrate glass or foil, other thicker materials. What's more, they could induce radioactivity in other substances. As a result, their hangar had become quite active, which was confusing their research, as as it became difficult to pinpoint the exact source of the radiation. It was frustrating, but at the same time exciting. Pierre had begun to pace as he often did when he was trying on a new notion. He had just discovered that radiation could color glass. How can we work like this, Marie? The equipment is active. Our clothes are active. Everything is active. It's impossible. We'll manage, my love. We need a new laboratory. Surely you can see that. And how can we do that? We have to do it. It's affecting our calculations. We can't work like this. It's just a problem, Pierre, not a disaster, she said, keeping her eyes on the fragile crystals as she navigated the floor. She was only half listening. He was right, of course, but there was nothing to be done about it. They didn't have the money, and that was that.
Her mind drifted back to a dinner they had gone to the other night honoring Henri Becquerel and the work he had done on the rays. During the speeches, she had amused herself by calculating the laboratories that could be built from the sale of diamonds worn by the society women that night. It was just a flick, a momentary stumble. Her toe grazed the edge of a broken slab of asphalt, but she overcompensated, and a moment later, the contents of the basin, two months of killing work, spilled out on the offending floor. She stood there holding the empty evaporating bowl, stunned by the enormity of the loss. Pierre, she choked. He froze while he took it in, the white solution against the black asphalt. Then he came and put his arms around her. She didn't say anything at first. He let her rail against the floor, against the shed and their deplorable working conditions. He let her cry more from exhaustion than from loss. Finally, she had spent her misery and frustration. She buried her face against his chest, taking a kind of primordial comfort from his warmth, the beating of his heart, his familiar smell, wood smoke and kerosene. What are we doing? What are we going to do, she asked. We're going to go on, but we're running out of time. We'll be all right, Marie. Things will come right if you let them. He looked down at her with an expression that was at once sad, slightly confused, and so authentic it was heartbreaking. She wanted to tell him how much she loved him, but no spoken language could encompass all that she felt. She tilted her face up to be kissed. No words, she said gently. He wiped the soot from her chin and leaned down to kiss her. No words, he murmured, which was their code for love. Just amazing. Just so beautiful. Thank you so much for that, Susan. Um, Just the level of details throughout this whole book, even how they're trying to find radium. Uh And we obviously know what what that's going to do to them later on and how it affects... I mean, obviously no one can be in radioactive material. Um, They used to carry it around in their pockets, like vials of radium, radioactive... He would take it out of his pocket and just hold it up to show that it was glowing in the dark. And and it was... I mean, we knew what the dangers were. They would breathe in these fumes, and she was working like this, you know, for... You know, 10 hours a day, stirring the slurry, trying to separate the materials out. It was pretty arduous work. And as I'm reading it, and you're saying that they're all active, and you know that they are literally dying as this is happening, so there's always that in the background, like you are killing yourself. Yeah, and Just as they're working and living and doing everything that they do. Let let me ask you about... Mary, do you call her Marie Carey or Mary? Marie. Marie. Okay. Because my daughter did a report on her, you know. (laughs) Didn't we all do a report on her? She was (laughs) like, she was that woman, two two, um, Nobel Nobel Prizes for her her work in science. And she was an early, one of the early pioneers as a woman in science. What was life like for her? Yeah, her life was amazing. She was a Polish governess. governess. She came from a humble background. Her parents were teachers. They ran a small school. Um, she um, finally saved enough money and she got help from her sister who was uh, also studying at the Sorbonne to go to Paris and study at the Sorbonne. And she was the first woman to graduate with the PH- equivalent of a PhD in chemistry. Wow. And um, you know, she was. Uh, she lived in the world of science at this time. The, si- the world of science at this time was very closed. It was a very cliquish society, and um, 
no women were involved in this world and she was always considered you know the helper Pierre's helper and when they were up for their first Nobel Prize um, in physics they were up with uh, Henri Becquerel who discovered the Becquerel rays which uh, eventually became radioactivity um, the Nobel um, committee wanted to just give it to Pierre not his helper, that's what they called her, and Becquerel. And Pierre said, okay, if you don't give it to my partner, Marie, then I don't want it. And the scientists, once they found out who she was and her contribution and what she had done, which took many years for her to finally be recognized by the scientific community, but once they recognized who she was, they used to say, um, Marie's greatest gift from God is radioactivity and Pierre's is Marie. And she was, she was the, the force in their team. She was the one that, you know, um, really drove their, their team forward. So, Were you interested in science before you started writing this book or is it just through your historical research that you found well, actually, this book came out of uh, my son. Well, first of all, I come from a scientific family. So I have one child who's a biological mathematician. I have another child who's software engineer. And my late husband was a very gifted physician. So I come from a very scientific background. And um, so my son was reading um, Thomas Pynchon's Against the Day, and, and there was a reference to Sepio Palladino and how the Curies were involved in and studying their um, their seances and treating their seances like experiments with rigorous control as if they were doing it in a laboratory and I just found that so interesting that here were these two worlds, the world of science and the world of spiritualism and how at first in the beginning, not maybe not in the beginning of spiritualism but at the turn of the last century um, the spiritualist, the study of spiritualism by these scientists were almost, well, they were looking for another branch of science. So they were looking at these spiritualists as, um, as a phenomenon that could be proved, that could be documented. And so um, that w- they took these, these seances very, very seriously. Had a lot of very rigorous controls, uh, cameras and hands on their hands, feet on their feet that constantly taking notes. Like I would read the, the um, transcripts of the seances minute by minute what happened. Shift in temperature. And the winds. The winds. So uh, you know, noise outside. <laughs> um, you know, probably a mouse, maybe not. You know, it was just like... <laughs> <laughs> it was like really interesting. But they believe, though. Yeah, the scientists. Uh, the scientists who were and they were scientists. They were scientists. These were Nobelists. These were people who won Nobel Prize or were just about to win Nobel prizes. We have people like Charles Richet, who was a famous physiologist who worked with warm-blooded animals and uh, studied how warm-blooded animals maintain their body heat. And he was an avid spiritualist. Uh, investigator. And even when these spiritualists were exposed as frauds, these scientists who dedicated their lives to a rigorous search for, um, for, um, for, for scientific truth, for empirical truth, um, would make excuses for these, for these spiritualists. They would always say, oh, well, she was a little tired, so she faked it, but normally she wouldn't, or, you know. <laughs> so there was always an excuse for when they expose these spirituals because they w- spent so many t- years they spent five years their reputations were writing on these spirituals and they didn't want to 
you know, they didn't want to admit that, that this was, you know. It's interesting that they could fool themselves in this way. And it's interesting also that the Curies, who were looking for the source of radiation from the ether, which is what they thought these spiritualists were tapping into, um, could fool themselves as well. And they also, not only did they fool themselves with the spiritualists, right, and what they were doing with these seances, but they also fooled themselves about the effects of radioactivity. Because at some point in their research, very early on, they had done research on what happens to live animals, lab animals, when they're exposed to radioactivity, and they died like that. And the Curies would not admit to themselves how dangerous their work was. And so they exposed their own workers to this danger. And they had this very cavalier attitude in dealing with radioactive material. So there was a lot of like uh, self, um, you know, self-denial. Alt facts here, yeah. Right. And it seems like, you know, in reading your book, the people who believed in, you know, these seances were people who could afford to go to seances and who who were pretty well off. Do you think that what what effect do you think money had to do with that? Besides reputation and all yeah, the things. Yeah. Um well um it was it wasn't reserved for the wealthy. I mean, there was uh, it, well, the the, the um, prevailing spiritualism movement began in the United States in the middle of the 19th century, and it began with these two sisters, the Fox sisters, and they were just you know young teenagers, and they found out that they had this talent, and they could rap on the floor without moving their shoes, and at first it was like a parlor trick that they did for their for themselves and for their their parents were astounded. Mom, Dad, look, we can we can talk with the dad. Look, ask him a question. And they would ask him a question. You know, the, the parents would ask him a question. They would pound the the floor like once for yes, twice for no. Anyway, so that kind of like became a thing that their parents would call in their friends, and then pretty soon they're renting halls, and then pretty soon other mediums are are um, imitating them, and it's kind of spreading to the United States, and from there it's spread to Great Britain, and from Great Britain it's spread to the rest of Europe, and suddenly the spiritualist movement just took off, and it wasn't just for the wealthy, it was for the middle class, but it wasn't even for the middle class, it was also for people of the working class, you know, so it became very, very popular among all social and then at the end of World War One, when we lost a generation of boys, then it just exploded the spiritual movement and took off. And so, would you say that it exploded because people were desperate to talk to the, the yeah, loved ones that yeah, passed? Yeah, and you look at you look at people like Arthur, Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote, you know, about a detective who was so um, cold and calculating and you know and scientific, and he was a devout believer in spirituals. And he lost his son in World War One, and so he became this devotee, and right. you know. He believed in all that stuff. And some of these spiritualists were really corny. I mean, their, their <laughs> tricks were... Like, if we saw them now, we would go, are you kidding me? I'm not going to believe that. And then other ones were amazing. Like, Giuseppe Palladino had some pretty amazing tricks and some... And their techniques were so interesting, how they fooled people. But, well, let's talk about... Let's talk about her. So how did she... Because... She, you know, she rose, you know, she was so popular, and then there was the fall. Can you tell yeah, us about that? Yeah, so she was um, she was an Italian peasant. She came from an extremely humble background. She was orphaned at 11, 12, taken in by a family, mostly as a laundress. And she said, no, I'm not, she, she actually started telling the family, like, you need to treat me better because I can see the future. And I can tell you, you know, and I can talk to you 
dead relatives, and so, and and um, and so they were completely taken in by her, and they they. She was no longer a laundress, and she started to get clients, and people started to study her, and um, she sort of rose up because um, certain scientists of, of, you know, pretty famous scientists took her under their wing, and and she became like very very well known. She was like the you know she was like a, a pop star of the time, and as she grew older, she she grew more distinguished in her in her appearance and she had a gray swath of hair and they said that her gray swath of hair was indication of her um, spiritualist um, talent and that if you during a seance if you held your hand over her swath of gray hair you could feel cold rushes of air coming out of it and so um, she had this panoply of of techniques in order to uh, to fool people and even today I mean even today there are people I was reading when I was doing the research on her, I would read one book and go, wow, this, she's got to be real. This is amazing. And then I would read another book, and it was all about how she did it. And I was like, oh, this woman is a fake. And then I'd read another, <laughs> and I just kept going back and forth. So I could see how people were taken in by her because she was just amazing how she would do. I mean, the controls that they had on, these, on her especially, they would have um, scientists on either side of her they would be holding her hand, and then she had her feet like this, and they would have, one would have his foot on her foot, the other one would have his foot on her foot, on the other foot, and they would have cameras on her, and they would be court recording everything she said. So how she was completely um, examined inside and out by a woman before these seances, there's no way that she could smuggle in this stuff. Okay, so she's here and she's making, she's a materializing medium, which meant that she would have, you know, faces glowing and bouncing around and she would have um, singing and instruments uh, floating in the air, playing music. So how did she do all this stuff? I mean, all these people were investigating her and keeping their eyes on her and it was very rigorously controlled. So how did she do this stuff? And well, one technique she had was she had a shoe that if she pressed on the back, the whole back would open up. So the person who had his foot on her shoe had no idea that there was no foot inside. And she would just take her foot out of the shoe and then her whole leg was freed. And she could do amazing miracles with her leg. And she was, you know, and her foot and her toes. She was, you know, she was she was limber. She was fifty years old, but she could put her leg behind her. She could she could do all this stuff, you know. So there was all she had a lot of techniques for this kind of thing. music boxes and and um you know, musical instruments, and so it's pretty, pretty amazing. So, how was she discovered? How did she fall? What was the fall? Um, she was discovered in a number of ways, um, but uh, she and she was discovered a number of times. And every time she would, um, I'm not exactly sure. Like the the first time she was, I think what happened was um, somebody turned the light on. And they could see that she was using her leg, or she was, you know, and so, um, and then they would just say, they would just, you know, she would just say, "Well, I was nervous, and I, I knew you, you people were waiting for something to happen, and I wanted to give you what you wanted, but generally, I never do this, and the reason why I was caught was because I never do it, and I'm not good at this." <laughs> <laughs> And the scientists would just go along with it. Of course, of course no, we still did. believe in you. So, yeah, of course. So, um, yeah. So, 
I love that. Did you want to read another piece? Yeah, I just wanted to talk about my main character, Lucia Ratowska. So she's, she comes from Warsaw. Her family um, were um, mill workers. They worked in textile mills. And um, she, on her mother's side, they were aristocrats, and all of their property, their land, was taken away by the Russians. So now she, her family's impoverished, and her father wants her to work in the textile mills. And her grandmother who at one time had been an aristocrat, you know, wanted her a better life for her. So she sends her to Paris. And and she uh, ends up working for a wealthy family. She gets, um, she loses her job. And then through a series of events, she finally gets to be working for Madame Curie. And um, it's really kind of, it's really her story and her journey as she goes from her world of faith. She's a devout Catholic. Uh, uh, she goes from her world of faith and then she is brought into the world of science. And it's she has a way of merging these two worlds, the world of faith and the world of science. She sees miracles in both worlds. And um, from the world of science, she's introduced to Eusebio Palladino. So now she's also in the world of spiritualism. And the world of spiritualism is the one antithetical world to her world of faith because um, she's been raised always to to stay away from spirits, that they're um, scary, that they're unpredictable. So she can't... Um, she has a really hard time going into the world of spiritualism from her, her world of faith. But the world of science is... is uh, you know, it's... She feels more comfortable in that world. So this this passage I wanted to read you is the first time she develops a very close relationship with Mary Curie. She's always she's lost her mother at an early age. She's always looking for a mother, and Madame Curie represents that woman to her. So this is the first time that they get together, um, and it's the first the first bonding. So she's been scrubbing and cleaning and whatever. Okay. She spent the rest of the evening scrubbing the pans and putting away the dishes. When she was finished, she found that the slop bucket was full again, despite emptying it only that afternoon. Since there was no kitchen maid to take it down, Lucia threw a shawl around her shoulders and tramped down the three flights of stairs to the courtyard. She muttered to herself the whole way down. It was a clear, cold night, the leaves crunchy with frost. It smelled like snow. For now, the clouds hovered on the horizon, leaving the sky a layered scrim of stars. She was glad for the shawl, but wished she had put on a hat. She crossed the courtyard and dumped the slops into the foul wooden barrel that sat behind the box hedge and was just turning back when she saw a dark figure standing in the shadows, an abrupt memory of her grandmother's warnings about white slavers sent a crackle of fear through her. One thing I, I just wanted you to know is that they had a little tiff, Marie and hers. They had a, before the scene, they had a little tiff, so... Ever look at the constellations, Lulu? This is what Marie calls her, Lulu. Ever look at the constellations, Lulu? It was Madame, her thin shawl thrown around her shoulders, her head tilted back, her eyes on the sky. She was shivering but seemed unaware of the cold. It's a good night for it. Look, there's the great chariot. Reluctantly, Lucia glanced up at the sky. I don't see a chariot. 
See, right there, Madame Curie came over and pointed up at the stars. Here, follow my finger. Lucia did not want to, although despite her efforts to stay aloof, she found herself following Madame Curie's pointing finger. See, there is the box and there is the shaft. Can you see it now? She could see it and said as much, forgetting for the moment that she was supposed to be upset. It's part of Ursa Major. You know Ursa Major? She shook her head. It makes up the tail of the great bear in its hindquarters. See, there is Merrick and Dubra. See the two stars? They're neighbors. Now look, come closer. If you move away from Dubra and go over there to that bright star, Lucia leaned in to follow her mistress's finger and got the smell of wood smoke and unwashed hair. You come to Polaris. It's not the brightest star in the sky, but it's brighter than the others in the constellation. Can you see it? Lucia nodded. She loved looking at the stars. Bobby Yusha always called them God's quilt. She often imagined the angels in heaven snuggling down beneath them. After that, there was an explanation about Polaris, how it was important to sailors and to celestial navigation. Madame Curie explained that it was also called the North Star and that the entire northern sky rotated around it, and that's what made it so important if you wanted to know where you were going. While Madame went on, Lucia's mind began to drift back to the laboratory, to the pile of pitch blend in the corner, to the noxious fumes in the boiling mass. Why do you work so hard? Why, why do you keep going? Madame Curie hesitated before answering. I'm looking for something, Lulu, something important, and I think I'm about to find it. The miracle rays, she laughed. Yes, they are a miracle, I suppose. At least they seem that way. But that's because we don't know enough about them. They are breaking the rules, you see. Energy out of nothing? Madame gave her a sidelong glance. You've been talking to Papa. I was curious. Is that wrong? Madame Curie stopped and regarded her with a look of sudden interest. No, that is not wrong, she said. In fact, that is right, very right. She stood there a moment longer and then pulled her shawl around her shoulders and started for the stairs. Come along, Lulu. Put on your woolens. We're going out. Now? But it's late. Dress warmly. The clouds are blowing in. It's going to snow. A few minutes later, they were dressed for the cold and climbing back down the stairs. They stepped out into the frosty night. Just as it was beginning to snow, flat white patties drifting through the lamplight. They walked the few blocks to Rue Le Mans, to the hangar in the courtyard. It was dark, and Madame had to fumble with the key in the lock. When she finally got it open, she stepped inside, leaving Lucia to stop at the threshold and gape in amazement. What's this, she whispered, astonished and alarmed by what she could not explain. She looked around at the jars of solutions on the shelves, clear and colorless in the daylight, but glowing blue in the dark. It was like nothing she had ever seen before. It was some kind of magic. The entire room was glowing blue. She thought this must be what a fish sees swimming in a lake, looking up through the layers of sunlit water to the surface. The jars shimmered blue like the robes of the Blessed Virgin Mary, blue like the sky in heaven, not of this earth, of another realm, ethereal and frail. And in that moment, Lucia realized it was everything she had been waiting for, the reason St. Lucia sent her to be with this odd family. Here was the Blessed Trinity made visible for human eyes. God was in this room with them. This was his light. It is so lovely, she breathed. So lovely, in fact, that it nearly brought tears to her eyes. Some kind of miracle, she murmured. No, not a miracle. What then? Radium. What makes it glow like that? Radioactivity. And what makes the radioactivity? Madame Curie smiled. Exactly.
I want you to keep reading. (laughs) (laughs) This is the fact that there these are women Mm -hmm. who are talking about science from you know the the constellations to radium is just was so amazing to me. You know, especially when I worked at Girl Scouts. You know, everything's about the STEM program. You know, science, technology, and all that. And to see this Mm -hmm. just materialize like your book is talking about is beautiful what made you want to to talk about this period of time this period in history Mm -hmm. um you know and sort of juxtaposing the polish and russian what made you choose this well this is my time period like uh late 19th century to say the middle well 1912 1913 it's just my time period it's the little russian takes place at the same time in the ukraine and it's just it's a period it's i find fascinating because it's the beginning of it all it's the beginning of our modern time so we're dealing with the miracles of today that we just take for granted electricity and telegraphs and telephones and and motor cars and you know flying machines and it all began during this time and I found I like it because I'm not a scientist and I don't have a strong background in mathematics or physics or chemistry and it's a time period that I can understand it's very simple (laughs) so these scientists um, up until say the middle of the 19th century they were gentlemen scientists so they were all um, they were all moneyed they were not they were not formally um Educated, they didn't have degrees. Uh, their um, their scientific inquiry was not um, peer reviewed. It wasn't rigorous in the in the way that we have now. But now, at this time period, in the late in eighteen nineties, eighteen eighties through the beginning of the twentieth century, suddenly the scientists are getting degrees. They're being their work is being peer reviewed. Their inquiry is very rigorous. They're being watched and monitored by each other. And so it's the beginning of our modern scientific world. And um, I was very fascinated with the Curies because the Curies, with the Curies, we have the beginning of particle physics. Up until now, uh, scientists knew that the smallest particle in the universe was the atom, and it was solid and immutable. And now suddenly the Curies with radioactivity um, bring to light the fact that atoms are not solid, that they're subatomic particles. And it's so interesting to me because this is the beginning of particle physics. Now, today, in our world, is the end of particle physics. Because we have discovered the last particle for the standard model of, um, of physics, and that's the Higgs boson. And so uh, we've completed the model. But it's so now we have the... If you ever get a chance, you guys have got to watch this documentary called Particle Fever because it's just amazing. And so it's just so interesting because what was begun at this time period is now finished at this time period. And it's sort of, I mean, how many times do you see that in the world of science? That's so... That it finished. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, it's just a time period I can, I can understand. So Yeah. And you know what's exciting? What was exciting about to me about this, even from the be- very beginning, you know how we're in Warsaw. It's in December, so you know it's cold. Right. So you would expect, like maybe a writer to start talking about the weather. You know, it's so cold, and you know the descriptions that you have halfway through the book because there's time for that. Yeah. But you start off with with her and what she sees and her hopes to show that her hopes were yeah. bigger even than the weather. Yeah. So you know from the very beginning that this is going to be a big book for this girl 
Lucia, you know, and as she moves forward. So that's, and I just love it from the very beginning. It just felt very woman centric. I'm like, go girl. Yeah. Yeah. Don't talk about the weather. I'm like, <laughs> this yeah. was great. And from you. the very beginning. Thank you. Yeah. So I well, appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, for me, Lucia's journey was about um, finding a place to belong to. <sighs> so here she was, an immigrant. Um, she was, uh, you know, and, and like Marie, who was also an immigrant, an outsider in Paris, and she was looking for a home. She was looking for a place to belong to. And at first she found it in her faith, but then, you know, when she was brought into the scientific world, she was looking for a place there too. And then through uh, and Marie, and then also, you know, through through Seppi Palladino. Um, she's always looking for a mother, for a place at the table, you know, so mm-hmm. that was her journey. And it seems that towards the end, she allows people to just be in their spaces that they've found most comfortable, which is yeah. intriguing to me. That yeah. I don't know that she's found her spot, but she there's an understanding that she has that other people, wherever they are, you just leave them, you know, because they're happy there. Maybe that's better than, yeah, than nowhere. Yeah, taking it away, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. So what's next? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that question. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, surprising, uh, surprisingly, I'm going to be working in the uh, early um, 20th century, late 19th century, <laughs> and I'm going to be doing uh, a book about early flight in California, so staying with the science, but this is about immigrants, always immigrants, people from the outside, so this, I'm going back to my roots, Ukrainian immigrants coming to um, Northern California, he's a tinker involved with early flight, gets into trouble with the local denizens, and we have a, a tragedy and a retribution and love and all that other stuff. Yay. So, <laughs> so right. that's what I'm working on now, flight. Right. Yeah. Right on. Thank you so much, Susan. Well, you're welcome. Thanks for coming out, guys. Thank you. Any questions or... Yes, yes, you, you over there. <laughs> What's your name? <laughs> um, thank you. I loved hearing you read. It was so beautiful. Um, I was wondering, it seems like there is this um, science thing, mm-hmm. and then there's the spiritualist thing, and then religion, mm-hmm. three distinct arenas. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering how the Curie's experience, the religious part, mm-hmm. and then how, is it Lucia? Or? Lucia, I call it Lucia, but the, the audio book people have, uh, yeah, Lucia, they call her Lucia. Lucia. I mean, how does she reconcile her faith and the science that she's in, suddenly immersed in, and how do the Curie's deal with religion in their scientific mind? Yeah, that's a really good idea. Um, she, um, <clears throat> it's not a problem for Lucia with re- with religion because she um, she sees miracles in both places and she, it translates. So she sees at the passage I read you, she sees the radiation as um, as the same rays that are coming out of the head of the Virgin Mary in a in a church that she knew about or that she used to visit when she was in Poland. So she, she kind of translates the miracles of science to her the miracles of her faith. And um, the Curies were not religious, and they were atheists, and they didn't believe in a religion. It was they were not looking to spiritualism. 
um, in order to, uh, they were looking for scientific explanation of it. And so they had their theories, and their theory was that that there was a, a, an ether that is in a different dimension, and that these, these spiritualists could tap into the ether, and that there were um, voices or whatever um, recorded in the ether, that they weren't contacting ghosts per se, but they were contacting visual images or leftover images. So they were not... Um, Madame Curie was raised a Catholic, but her mother died at an early age, and she just forced, just didn't believe in her religion after that. So, mm-hmm. Yes, you, you in the black right there with the curly hair. You. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to ask both of you a question. Um, last time I was here was this Saturday, or at least... A recent time I was here was after the election, and there was a gathering here of largely writers and readers, and somebody asked a question that night, um, can we still write fiction? Can we, are we still going to write novels? I'm just wondering, both of you as fiction writers, how do you feel about, I don't know what you're working on, but um, how do you feel about like your job now? <laughs> Well, 1984 is now like the uh, top of the bestseller list. So <laughs> I wonder why. Number one on Amazon. Yeah. A, on Facebook, there's, somebody made a book that says 2017 by George Orwell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Alt, alt facts. Um, yeah, I see fiction as a, has a, um, a real role to play in today's political climate. Um, I think that you can convey um, so much from a from a just off-center viewpoint. Like you can, you can take a character, you can take a situation, which is, um, you know, uh, not exactly on the head, and convey all the emotions of the of the period, and convey the the um, the dilemmas of the period and the dangers of the period, uh, in the same way that Orwell did with 1984. That kind of thing, um, you know. Um, we can't. It can't happen here. I don't know if anybody's read Upton Sinclair. That's happening right now. So I mean, it's like there's all this like emotion within these fictional characters, and they're portraying a certain viewpoint or a certain time period. But it's not nonfiction. It's fiction, but it's conveying all the stuff that we need to know about this time period. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I feel because you're always looking for truth in fiction. I think yeah. in fiction you have to write about truth and what's real. And when I wrote Grace, it's it's, there's a lot of issues that, that we're dealing with now. So for me, this time is not new. What's sad for me is that more people see it. So as a black woman, you know, being this intimidation, this fear, it's learning how to walk through it even when it's around you and nobody believes you. So when they're marching for Trayvon Martin or the L.A. riots and people are like, why are they destroying their own neighborhood? Why are they angry? Why are they... And you sympathize with them but you don't understand it. It makes me sad that more people understand that anger. So that anger that so many people are feeling is the same anger that's been in my community ever since I can remember. So in knowing how to navigate around it. So it's not new to me, this anger, this discomfort. It's just sad for me that that it couldn't be avoided, you know, for everyone else to be drawn, or more people to be, because there's still people who still don't get it, who still say, I don't understand why they're marching. What's their problem? You know, or, you know, 
Yeah, or all lives matter. You know, you we understand something different now. A lot more people understand now. You could say, I know why they're marching. I know why they're angry. And now it's what do you do with it? So in Grace, I talk about immigration. What does it mean? Who is an immigrant? You know, how long do I have to be here before I'm no longer an immigrant? And I talk about the, in the Civil War, the guy who started the Civil War was a Frenchman. You know, he lived in Louisiana, but he was white and he was rich. And he ordered the troops to fire on Americans in Fort Sumter, you know, and but he celebrated and, you know, it's the Confederacy and it's this exciting thing. But for me as a black person, when do I, how long, how many generations do I have to be here? Or the guy or the guy who was born here and doesn't speak English until he's late in life like this guy. So you still in fiction, you get to talk about all these issues in truth and all that truth and in beauty and try to find answers and exposing those things that people don't understand. So people will tell me who voted for Trump, I really loved your book. I understood something different. And I'm just like, you did not understand my book. I'm like, <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, but really I think it's it's all of us. I think what's going to happen is we're all going to have to to find the truth on on the other side of the fence. And also there's that emotional connection, especially with your book. I mean, mm. you know, that you can... You can talk about our time using another time and infuse it with all the emotion and the connection and the distress and fear and sadness that you couldn't do with nonfiction. I don't. It's yeah. You know, it's drier with nonfiction, but with fiction, it's all juicy and yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I, that was, I reading twice. Yes. Really beautiful. Thank you. I'm curious, and were both of you kind of um, dealing with uh, a lot of real, you know, real life facts and characters, what's the point in your process where you are, you know, you move from research into writing and how to, is it kind of, is it a shift or is it a back and forth? How does that work for your process? Um, for me, it's a, a back and forth always. So um, I, I have to know enough about the world where I can just uh, live in it and, and write about it without stopping every two seconds because it's too disjointed. But I already know a lot about the world because I've done two books in it. And um, and then all of a sudden I'll just c- come across something like, oh, what kind of corset did she... V- I can't just have her wear a corset. It's got to be like a straight front corset that... <laughs> You know, fastens. So, what did that look like? And what were the bones made out of? And the whalebone. And then, you know, so you have to do, you have to stop and do a bunch of research as you're going along, but not so much that it stops the flow of. Uh, you have to. You really have to know the world. And then what happens is, once you know the world, then you start creating your own world out of that world. And it might. And if you, if I could bring somebody from the late 19th century, early 20th century, and have them read the book, they would go, this is in no way my world. (laughs) But then, you know, it's my world that I've made out of it. And so, yeah, it's just constantly back and forth, but... Yeah. yeah, and I would say the same thing, at least for this novel and the one that I'm working on, which is overwhelming right now. <laughs> but um, yeah, you're going because you can go down a rabbit hole really quickly and really easily. Like I've learned so much about absinthe. This because I was like, she's gonna have, he's gonna, and then Dan, my editor, is like, no absinthe. I'm like, you know how long, I how know. much I drank yeah. to write that. One? <laughs> 
and it's not even in the book, you I know? know. <laughs> like, I know. So, or, or little things. Yeah, like, like little things, like an atomizer, like, okay, the person has pneumonia, so what does the atomizer look like in 19th century? Like the, yeah. the, the, the you know, vaporizer. Yeah, oh, and there's porcelain. no bananas in the South. Oh, there's no bananas. Like How can she see a banana peel on the floor? Yeah, there's no really, bananas. Oh, yeah. Oh, the, Remember? <laughs> and then you make like horrendous mistakes that you later learn because your relatives yeah. read the book after yeah. it's published. Yeah. And so, and because my my one of my relatives is the first book was takes place in Ukraine, and she's Russian, and she comes up and I said, "Well, how'd you like the book?" She goes, "Oh, it's very nice, Susan, but." There are no alleys in Russia. I go, no alleys? And there's like a big scene in an alley. I go, no alleys? Like not even in the Ukraine? Nowhere? No alleys? No. She goes, no, not one alley. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. Back and forth. Was there banana cream pie? No, it's coconut cream pie. Coconut. Yeah, they didn't have bananas till later on. It was, but it was not then. And I, and I love that line too. And it was just like, ah, oh. yeah. Yeah, you gotta lose it, yeah. or you can just cheat. Sometimes you cheat. Yeah, you do. No bananas in the south. No lipstick like this. We found that out. Yeah, it's a pot like they paint it on from a pot. So little detail, but you know what? Let none of that get in the way of your story. If you're writing a historical fiction, tell your story, and then it'll come together. I think. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you can fudge. Mm-hmm. You know, I I take a lot of liberties with Marie, poor Marie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not with science. Science, I feel like I have to be really true to science. Mm-hmm. You know, but but with Marie herself, you know, so. Yeah. I only had to be true to timeline. So, like, if we were writing about, you know, 9-11, you can't have characters in New York, and then that happens in that same year, and then nothing, there's no mention about the Twin Towers. So things like that, like, big things have to happen that affect you, or somebody needs to say, Mm -hmm. hey, look at that, or something. (laughs) I don't know. Wow, that's crazy. You know, but... (laughs) I know, like one time, one time I would like to have one of my characters go, I'm just going to Google that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Any other questions? No? Okay, well, I guess that's it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Yeah, yeah, one more question. So, you guys share the same editor? What is that? <laughs> <laughs> the best editor the in the world. The best editor in the world. <laughs> Yay, Dan! Yay, Danny! Twilight has a tape of hints of authors talking about Dan Smetanka. Right. Yeah. Now. Right. Uh, yeah. Dan Smetanka, who brought the the wine and cheese and the treats. Yeah. I have the best editor and the best agent. Dan. Oh, hi, folks! Give her a great hand. <laughs> so I'm all. I'm all. Perfect. <laughs> um, well, that's it. Yes. Um, if you haven't bought your book yet, you can do so behind you. We'll clear this out and we'll have a signing going. Thank you, Skylight. Thank you. Thank you guys. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.